The second book, The Duel with the Crown. Chapter 8 Are you with me so far, Ganapati? Got everything? I suppose you must have, or you couldn't have taken it down, could you? <laughs> Under our agreement, I mean. But you must keep me in check, Ganapati. I must learn to control my own excesses of phrase. I mean, it's all very well at this stage of my life and career to let myself go and unleash a few choice and pithy epithets that I've been storing up for the purpose. But that would fly in the face of what has now become the Indian autobiographical tradition, laid down by a succession of eminent baldish heads from Rajaji to Chawla. The principle is simple. The more cantankerous the old man <coughs> and the more con controversial his memoirs, the more rigidly conventional is his writing. Look at Neera Chaudhuri who wrote uh, his autobiography of an unknown Indian on that basis and promptly ceased to live up to its title. It is not a principle that these memoirs of a forgotten Indian can afford to abandon. Right, Ganapati? So, we have got the uh, genealogies out of the way. My progeny are littering the palace at Hastinapur uh, and good old Gangadatta is still safely ensconed as regent. No, on second thoughts, you better cut out that adverb, Ganapati. Safely wouldn't be entirely accurate. A new British resident, successor of the bewhiskered automobilist, is in place now and is far from sure he likes what's going on. Picture the situation for yourself, Gangaji. Gangaji, the man in charge of Hastinapur for all practical purposes, thin as a papaya plant, already balder than what I am today, peering at you through round-rimmed glasses that give him the look of a startled owl. And the rest of his appearance was hardly what you could call prepossessing. He had, by then, burnt his soup and fish and given away the elegant suits copied for him from the best British magazines by the court master tailor. But, to make matters worse, he was now beginning to shed part or most of his traditional robes on all but state occasions. People were forever barging into his study unexpectedly and finding him in nothing but a loincloth. Excuse me, I was just preparing myself for an enema, he would say, with a feeble smile, as if that explained everything. In fact, as you can well imagine, it only added to the confusion. But it was not just the region's personal eccentricities that were causing alarm at the resident's residence across the hill from the palace. Word was beginning to get around of Gangaji's radical, indeed one might say dangerous, ideas about the world around him. He's renounced sex, of course, but we knew that already, the new representative of the King Emperor said to his equerry one evening on his veranda, as one of my men hung from a branch above and listened. We itinerant, seditious fakirs, as that ignorant windbag Winston Churchill once called us, had to have our sources, you understand. Not all of them were happy with the ash-smearing requirement, but they and I learned more wandering about with a staff and a bowl under the British than I did after becoming a minister in independent India. Back to the story. Problem is, he is now going further, preaching a lot of damn nonsense about equality and justice and what have you. And you tell me he cleans his own toilet instead of letting his damn bestie do it. Jamadar, Sir Richard, the aide in a thin young man with a white pinched face said, coughing politely. <clears throat> a bisti is only a water carrier. Really? The resident seemed surprised. 
I thought those were called lotas. They, they are, sir. The equerry coughed even more loudly this time. <coughs> lotas are those little pots you carry water in. I mean, they carry water in, Sir Richard, whereas Abyssi is the kind they have to balance on their heads, I suppose, Sir Richard said. Damn complicated language, this Hindustani. Different words for everything. Yes, sir, I mean, no, sir, began the equerry, doubly unhappy about his own choice of words. He wanted to explain that the Bhisti was a person, not a container. What I mean is, and different genders too, Sir Richard went on. I mean, is there any good reason why a table should be feminine and a bed masculine? Do you think it has to do with anything what you do on them? Well, those, no, sir, not, not exactly. The young man began his reply cautiously, unsure whether the question required an answer. It's really a matter of word endings, you see, sir, and... Ah, boy, said the resident, cutting him off in full flow, as a white-haired and white-shirted bearer padded in on bare feet, tray in hand. About time, eh? It was the convival hour. The sun had begun its precipitous descent into the unknown, and the distant sky was flaming orange like saffron scattered on a heaving sea. In the gathering gloom, the insects came out onto their own, buzzing, chirping, biting at the blotchy paleness of colonial flesh. This was when English minds turned to thoughts of drink. Twilight never lasts long in India, but its advent was like opening time at the pubs our rulers had left behind. The shadows fell and the spirits rose, the sharp odour of quinine tonic, invented by lonely planters to drown and justify their solitary gins, mingled with the scent of Firangipani from their leafy, insect-ridden gardens, and the soothing chink of ice against glass was only disturbed by the occasional slap of a frustrated palm against a reddening spot just vacated by an anglovorous mosquito. Boy! Whiskey Lao! Chota whiskey, bara water! Understand? What will you have, he slop? A weak whisky would suit me very well too, Sir Richard. Right. Two whiskies, door whisky, boy, and a big jug of water. Understand? Not a little lota, eh? Bring it in a bisti, bisti me lao. He smiled in satisfaction at the bearer, who gave him an astonished look before bowing and salaming his way backwards out of the room. Uh, if I may point out, sir. Nothing to it, really, Sir Richard continued. These native languages don't really have much to them, you know. It's not as if you have a right poetry in them. A few crucial words, sufficient English for ballast and your sailing smoothly. In fact, his voice became more confidential. I even have a couple of tricks down my sleeve. He leaned forward towards the young man, his eyes, mouth and face all rounded concentration. There was a band crow, he intoned sonorously. There was a cold day. Not bad, eh? I learned those on the boat. Sounds like perfect Odoo, I'm told. He paused and frowned. The devil of it is remembering which one means close the door and which one will get someone to open it. Well, never mind, he said, as his companion opened his mouth in diffident helpfulness. We're not here for a language lesson, he's loved. I was speaking to the stam regent we have here. What do you make of him, eh? Well, sir, he's very able, there's no question about that, Heeslop responded slowly. And the people seem to hold him in some regard. They would, wouldn't they? With all the ideas he puts into their head. All this nonsense about equality and toilet cleaning. 
I understand he's suggesting that caste distinctions ought to be done away with. We've always believed they were the foundation of Indian society, haven't we? And now a chap comes along out of nowhere, scion of the ruling caste, and says untouchables are just as good as he is. How does he propose to put that little idea into practice, do you know? He seems to believe in the force of moral authority, sir. He cleans his own toilet to show that there is nothing inherently shameful about the task, which, as you know, is normally performed by the untouchables. Sir Richard produced a sound which might have prompted by a winged assault on his ear, or then again, he slops implied enthusiasm for Ganga stand. The young man continued, carefully moderating his tone. He seems to think that by getting down to their level, he will make them more acceptable to the people at large. Untouchability is no longer legal in Hastinapur, but he knows it's still impossible for a cobbler to get into the main temple, so he makes a point of inviting an untouchable, or a child of God, as he calls them, to his room for a meal every week. As you can imagine, sir, this gets talked about. Favorably? I'd say public opinion is divided in about equal parts of admiration and resentment, sir. The latter mainly from the upper castes, of course. Of course. And how do they take all this at the palace? Regent or no regent, there must be many who don't agree with these ideas. Cleaning his own toilet, indeed. Absolutely, sir. We have heard that he tries to get the royal widows to clean their own bathroom, sir, and they burst into tears. Or threw him out of the zanana or something, or both. The equerry cleared his throat. <clears throat> Old inhibitions die hard, sir. Our information is that the reason he entertains the untouchables in his own room is that there were too many objections to their eating in any of the palace dining rooms. And the attendant who serves them has strict instructions to destroy the plates afterwards, so that no one else need risk eating off them. Hmm, and what about us? Uh, us? Yes, Hislop, us! The equerry looked nonplussed. No, sir, I don't think they destroy the plates we're served on, but I haven't really checked. Would you like me to? No, Hislop! The resident's asperity was sharpened by the buzzing sound around his ears and his increasing desire for a drink. I mean, what does he think about us? The British Raj, the King Emperor? Is he loyal or a damned traitor or what? I don't know, sir. The equerry shifted his weight in the cane chair. He's not an easy man to place, really. As you know, Sir Richard, there was a time when he was rather well regarded by us. Among the king's most loyal subjects, in fact. He was a regular at receptions here. He even arranged a major contribution to the Ambulance Association, sir, during the last war. But of late, he's been known to say things about Swaraj, you know, sir, self-rule. About Pan-Indian nationalism. No one seems to know what started him off on that track. They say he reads widely. Basic truth about the colonies, Hislop. Any time there's trouble, you can put it down to books. Too many of them, too many of the wrong ideas getting into the heads of wrong sorts of people. If ever the empire comes to ruin, Hislop, mark my words, the British publisher will be to blame. Hislop seemed to comment on this insight, but then thought the better of it. The resident reached for his glass and realized he still didn't have one. <coughs> Boy, 
he called out. There was no answer. Sir Richard furrowed his florid brow. And this Ganga Deen, or whatever they call him, he snapped. How does he comport himself? Has he been giving us any trouble? That's a rather important position to leave someone of his stripe in, isn't it? Perhaps I should do something about it. <coughs> Sir, the regent has always behaved very correctly. In fact, Heeslop licked a nervous lip. I believe he was our candidate for the throne once. Your predecessor was rather sorry when things took a different turn at the time of the late Maharaja's second marriage. But it would seem that Ganga Datta who wanted it that way. I've seen the files, the resident nodded. What on earth happened to our drinks? Boy! Boy! The elderly bearer, dusty and panting, responded to the last summons. Sahib, I coming, Sahib, he stated, somewhat unnecessarily. What the devil's taking you so long? Where's our whiskey? I bring instantly, Sahib, the bearer assured him. I am looking for bisti all this time, as Sahib wanted. I have found Sahib with great difficulty. I bring him in, Sahib? Of course you can bring the water in, Sir Richard said crossly. A choking sound emanated from the equerry behind him. The bearer clapped his hands. A grimy figure in a dirty undershirt and dirtier loincloth entered the veranda, carrying a black oilskin bag from one end of which water dripped relentlessly onto the tiled floor. This is Sahib, the bearer proudly announced. Like a conjurer pointing to a rabbit, he has just produced out of an improbably small hat. What the devil? The resident seemed apoplectic. He slept groaned. <laughs>